And now reading from Matthew 18, verses 21 through 35. Then Peter came and said to him, Lord, if another member of the church sins against me, how often should I forgive? As many as seven times? Jesus said to him, not seven times, but I tell you, 77 times. For this reason, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his slaves. When he began the reckoning, one who viewed him 10,000 talents was brought to him. And as he could not pay, his Lord ordered him to be sold together with his wife and children and all his possessions and payment to be made. <clears throat> Sorry. So the slave fell on his knees before him saying, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the Lord of that slave, re- <sighs> the Lord of that slave released him and forgave him the debt. But that same slave, as he went out, came upon one of his fellow slaves who owned him, who owed him a hundred denarii, and seizing him by the throat, he said, pay what you owe. Then his fellow slave fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me, and I will pay you. But he refused. Then he went and threw him into prison until he would pay the debt. When his fellow slaves saw what had happened, they were greatly distressed, and they went and reported to their Lord all that had taken place. Then his Lord summoned him and said to him, you wicked slave, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. Should you not have had mercy on your fellow slave as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his Lord handed him over to be tortured until he would pay his entire debt. So my heavenly father will also do every one of you if you do not forgive your brother or sister from your heart. Good morning, everyone. I'm Jonah. My pronouns are they, them, theirs. I'm the lead pastor here at Zao. Um, And that is an intense way to end that story. Um, Just to give you a little context, that's Matthew's style. We're going to get into it um, a little bit later about what that really means and how the scope of God's forgiveness uh, is infinite. Um, But Matthew really loves uh, a dramatic ending. Uh, And so... So Matthew, in telling us this story, wants us to take it incredibly seriously, that what is happening here on this earth matters and matters to God. The way that we treat one another, how we approach one another with forgiveness or with harshness around debt really matters. And today, as we're going through our series, Talking with God, and we're in the midst of the Lord's Prayer, we are on uh, the line that we're calling today here, Debts and Debtors. Now, one of the things that we talk about at Zao is how whenever we pray the Lord's Prayer, because we are, most of us, not speaking it in its original language, we're all interpreting through the lens of our own words and our own language. And so there aren't any particular right, precise words, certainly not any words in English, that are the most correct. There are words that have different implications. There are words that mean different things to us in our hearts. And that's why, as we pray the Lord's Prayer, I invite everyone to pray with the words that come most naturally, in whatever language comes most naturally or phrasing, um, as we pray together in one spirit. And the line that we're talking about today, in English, is sometimes rendered as, forgive us our sins, as we forgive those who sin against us. That's the one that we put up on our screen. Forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And sometimes, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. 
Has anybody ever heard those, those three different terms? I see some nods. All three of them are actually used in Scripture um, around this kind of language. And so there is this kind of mishmash of sin and trespass and debts. We, in our current context, uh, if we have one error um, in the way that we engage the teachings of Jesus, and we don't have one, we have many. But one of our errors is a, is a tendency to over-spiritualize, to not take literally what Jesus is talking about, and to make it this kind of lofty, theoretical, hyper-spiritualized interpretation. And so of those concepts, debt, trespass, and sin— Our culture is way more comfortable dwelling in that kind of amorphous sin category. Let us forgive one another our sins. But I actually want to talk to you about debt today. Because literal debt has enormous meaning in Jesus' context and in ours. Jesus, when he was talking to his people, was talking to folks who were operating out of a debt economy. This is going to sound a little familiar, but the way that the whole economy worked was that some people owned things, and most people didn't own them, and had to borrow in order to survive. Had to borrow land in order to farm it, had to borrow money in order to make money, had to be in debt in order to survive. There really wasn't a way to just live your life and subsist without engaging in this debt economy. And that immediately made a a stratified system of classes of people where the folks at the very top owned almost everything. And everyone beneath them was in debt to them at all times. And the vast majority at the bottom were really day-to-day in danger of defaulting on their debts. They were tenant farmers, sharecroppers, who were borrowing their land from the owners of the land. And so they would borrow the land and they would pay for it by farming and giving a certain amount of crops. Now, if they didn't have enough crops to pay their land rent, it was because they didn't have enough crops to feed themselves. And so in times of drought or famine, there was widespread There was widespread debt failure. There was widespread need because people weren't able to eat and they weren't able to pay for their land. And so, the way that, that the economy worked here was that you would charge interest on anything borrowed which was, was profiting from people's um, poverty and profiting from people's need. And you would also collect collateral. You'd hold on to something of enormous value so that if a person was not able to pay their debt and defaulted on their debt, you could keep it. Now, this is the way the whole world was built. It's the way our economy is built too. Our economy has evolved, and it is less um, in our context about land usage, but our economy is still a debt economy. We don't have to raise hands if we don't want, but is anybody here currently in debt? Yeah. Yeah. I'm in massive student loan debt. Most of us, <laughs> most of us have had to take on some kind of debt at some point in order to live or work or take any kind of risk. 
Most of us didn't come into this world with enough resources to survive, and so we had to borrow them. And the way that the economy works then capitalizes literally off of that is to say, okay, you can borrow it from me for a time, but A, I'm going to take back more than what you borrowed, so you better produce enough that you can give me more. And B, if you can't, if you can't pay me back, I'm going to hold on to something really important to you, or I'm going to put you in jail. And that's how it works now, and that is how it worked then. And when Jesus is preaching, he's not preaching to the folks who were born into land. Jesus is not preaching to the folks who were born into that wealth. Jesus is preaching to the folks who were born into debt, and sometimes debt slavery. You see, in Jesus' time, one of the ways that you could pay off your debt, one of the ways you had to pay off your debt, if you didn't produce enough and couldn't cover that interest, if you were going to default, is you would be sold. You would, your whole, yourself, you would sell your offspring or yourself into slavery for a period of years to pay off your debt. This debt slavery economy defined existence for the people that Jesus was talking to. And so unlike today, when we hear debts and debtors and we hyper-spiritualize and say, what a lofty idea, Jesus' context, when they said debt, they knew exactly what he meant. He meant debt. He meant literal debt. And these processes of praying on folks in their vulnerability. They're against God's law, like explicitly from the beginning. Torah, God's law, Mosaic law, outlines how wrong this is and has laws against it. Now, it's not completely illegal to charge interest, but it's mostly illegal to charge interest, according to God's law. If there's ever any need, if there's ever been famine, if your neighbor is suffering you are not allowed to charge interest. And yet, that is when the economy Jesus lived in, much like our economy, preys on people the most. Has anybody ever heard of or used a payday loan? Payday loans are, are this kind of perfect picture of capitalism at its purest that identifies a need says, hey, you are in desperate need. You need money right now before you're going to get paid. So as collateral, we're going to take who knows what. There are various ways to do it. You can put your own paycheck up. You put up, uh, you know, your vehicle, your, your transportation, your base, the basics that you have to live. You put up for collateral. And you take out a loan from somebody who has enough to lend it out who's going to capitalize on your moment of need by charging you sometimes hundreds of percent interest. They've capped how much interest you can charge on a payday loan in various states. Do you, does anybody know how much it is in Wisconsin? 574%. 574%. So if you need to put something up to get $1,000 just to make it to the next month, by the time you pay it off, you could owe six grand. That is against God's law, explicitly. Sometimes we think like, oh, God cares about the lofty things. This is the minutia God cares about. This is the minutia that God wrote into the law from the beginning, saying this is wrong. 
You cannot do that. That is against God's way. And yet, functionally, that is how our whole economy is built. Taking the needs, the basic needs of life, and making them profitable through exploitation. And what happens when you have a whole class of people in debt? What happens when an entire group of folks, maybe the majority of folks, cannot know that they are going to be free of debt at any point in the future? How does it affect the way we make decisions? One of my favorite professors in college, uh, I believe it was during a political sociology class I was taking from him, had like a really frank discussion with all of us about student debt. And he said, who does it serve? That you all, we had a lot of first-generation college students um, in, in our class, um, in our school. And, and so a lot of them were going into college, had, had been really excited about it, had opportunities in many ways that people before them had not had in their family systems. And yet they had also had to get into debt in order to do it. And our professor said, who does it serve that when you graduate, after getting maybe a radical education, after learning to think critically, after learning to be creative and tap into who you are, after building connections with people and with, with thinkers and resources and books and, and a whole uh, tradition of learning, who does it serve that you get out and immediately you have to find the best possible paying job so that you don't die from debt? Who does that serve? It serves the people to whom we are in debt, not only because we have to pay them back, but also because how can we do anything to challenge the system that is when we are enslaved to our own debt? How can we take risks to challenge the systems that are when we need to pay our own bills? When we will be taken to court, when the basics that we have could be taken away. And so, a debt economy in Jesus' time as in ours serves only the most wealthy. It protects itself, itself through status quo. And it keeps the majority of people captive to the way things are and not at all free. Now, we talk a lot here about Jesus and the kingdom and the ways of liberation. But perhaps we don't talk enough about Jesus, the liberator. Jesus' MO is freedom. And freedom is something that gets really complicated in an American context because that word has been bastardized here. Anybody ever had any freedom fries? <laughs> freedom is now code for patriotism in this country, and freedom is this warped concept about domination. But freedom in the gospel truly is freedom. It is liberation from captivity of any kind. It is the freedom to be one's fullest self, to be an accountable, just community, to live in the household of God, provided for and providing for others. Liberation and freedom are the MO of the gospel. And so when Jesus, the liberator, comes into contact with a debt economy and debt slavery, literal debt slavery, do you think Jesus has nothing to say about that? 
In fact, we actually miss a lot of scripture when we hyper-spiritualize because Jesus talks about debt a lot. Jesus talks about captivity a lot. And he's talking about it not just in spiritual terms, but in real life terms. One of the first things that Jesus does in his public ministry, it's, it's, it's written about in Luke chapter 4, but Jesus, it's like his first thing he does is he goes to the temple and he starts reading the scriptures and preaching. And the scripture that he reads and preaches from is from Isaiah, who is this radical, amazing prophet. And the text that he says, some people, this, usually this comes from boomers, um, so I don't know if it'll land here, but uh, the, some people have called this Jesus' mission statement. You could also think of it as like Jesus' Twitter bio. <laughs> you know, multi-generational ministry here. Um, but this is Jesus's, this is Jesus' sense of self that he's projecting into the world, saying, this is what I'm here for. And he says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. Again, I want you to take this super, super literally. Good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to let the oppressed go free and proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Now that last line, proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, is another thing that we miss if we don't know uh, a little bit more about Jesus' context. The year of the Lord's favor was also called Jubilee. Jubilee, which sounds like really fun, yeah? It, it actually most literally means forgiveness. It's the year of the Lord's forgiveness. But Jubilee is the culmination of something else. It actually all goes back to Sabbath. So Sabbath is the seventh day of the week. And it's modeled off of creation that God created for six days and then rested on the seventh. Sabbath is a fundamentally radical idea. It's an anti-capitalist idea. It's a like pro-humanity idea. It's also like a really beautiful environmentalist idea, a procreation idea, where God says, hey, I know you feel really productive. I know that you need to feed yourselves. I know that you need to work. But you know what else you need to do? Not that. You need to set aside time once a week and not work. And Sometimes we think about this as like, oh, right, it's Sunday is now, you know, in the Christian context, and it's time off work so that we can go to worship. No. This is time off work as worship. It's time to do nothing as an act of worship and glory to God. And part of it, and part of what makes it anti-capitalist, is that it's for everyone. And it's not at the whim of your boss. It's not at the whim of the landowner. It is God's decree that everyone, every living thing, get a day of rest a week. And it actually goes further. So there's, there's the day of Sabbath once a week. And then there's the Sabbath year. In the seventh year, the land is to remain unused. You're not supposed to plant in the earth on the seventh year. Now, we know that that didn't happen widespread. Everyone would have starved. But it was a sort of crop rotation cycle that said every seven years, even the land deserves a break. Give it a rest. 
Simultaneously, when that land was resting, it's not that nothing would grow in it. Stuff would grow. It just wouldn't have been cultivated by human hands. And the mandate was, if you own that land, you're not allowed to touch what's on it. But if you're poor or hungry, you can. Whatever the earth produces is for you. During that Sabbath year also, there was an explicit forgiveness of debt. There was this kind of minor reset of all debt that said, hey, you can't actually hold somebody captive to debt for, seven year, for more than seven years. And then, knowing that that wasn't going to be enough, God commanded the Jubilee year. That was every seventh seven years. So after 49 years came Jubilee year. And at Jubilee year, the only way that I can really think about it, has anybody ever seen Fight Club? You know how the goal in Fight Club was to like erase all credit card debt? Or may I remind you that the goal in Fight Club was to erase all credit card debt? <laughs> I mean, there's a lot about soap too, but... So you erase all credit card debt, and the premise of Fight Club is that if you erased all credit card debt, society would collapse. Well, guess what Jubilee is? It is exactly that. It says everything that you have built up that is based on debt, everything that you're holding over anyone's head, anyone that you have enslaved due to debt, any collateral you have taken due to debt, anything you are holding over one another, it's gone. It's erased. And the idea is that God had originally, in the, in the 12 tribes of, tribes of Israel, God had distributed land equitably. And there was no... There was no justice in some people slowly, somehow, mostly through luck and, and heritage, accumulating more than others. And so every 50th year, every jubilee year, it was like etch-a-sketch to the economy. We're starting over, everyone gets everything equally. That sounds really awesome. Does anybody want jubilee year? Like even just for student debt maybe? Like, but these are the radical ways of God's economy. And they are so contrary to the world we live in. When we say forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors, we are proclaiming and committing to God's economy. God's economy of jubilee, of forgiveness, of distributive justice, redistributive justice restorative justice, because that is God's righteousness, forgiveness of debt, that no may have more off the back of another. So, when we say, forgive us our debts, as we forgive our debtors, and we want to take that literally, what does that mean when we're talking to God? I mean, it certainly means that we're bought in, that we're proclaiming in a bold and radical way. Maybe we didn't know this till today, but we are proclaiming in a bold and radical way that we are bought in on God's economy, that we're committed to redistributive justice, to reparations, to restoration, to wholeness, to taking from those who have taken and giving back to those who have suffered. That's what we proclaim when we say forgive us our debts, as we forgive our debtors. 
But in that most literal sense, we are also saying to God, forgive us our debts to you. So what debt do we owe to God? Well, in the way that God has built creation, these metaphors of the household, and that's, uh, we've mentioned it on a couple of other Sundays here in this series, but um, just a reminder, or if, you're, if this is your first time, the Lord's Prayer is built on the idea of a well-run household. And God, as the ultimate householder, the ultimate homemaker, who is providing for everyone, and we all live in the just and beautiful home of God's creation. And so God's creation, this home that God has built, God has entrusted us to it, and God has entrusted it to us. We are the stewards of God's creation. God owns creation. Creator owns reality. God owns this place because God made it, but God shares it. God offers it to us. God gives creation to humanity. And God's request, then, the thing that we owe to God in return, is to take care of it and one another. This is not ours. And we owe God care. I want to share a quote. Um, John Dominic Crossan, who wrote the book The Greatest Prayer, which has deeply informed this series, I highly recommend it. Um, he wrote something beautiful about this, and I just want to um, have it up on the screen. We owe it to God to run God's world responsibly. We owe the divine householder the conservation of the world house. We owe the divine homemaker the consecration of the earth home. We owe God adequate care of all God's creation. We owe God collaboration in hallowing God's name, in establishing God's kingdom, and in doing God's will, as in heaven, so also on earth. We owe it to God to cease focusing on heaven, especially in order to avoid focusing on earth. We owe it to God to ensure that there is enough food and not too much debt in God's well-run household. So what if that debt that we owe God is one that we can never pay back? What if we're too far in the hole on that one? What if looking at human history we say, oh, we did not do what was asked or required of us. And the thing that we owe to God, we have failed so miserably for generations. Does God take from us something as collateral? Does God say you better fix it and with interest? Does God hold us captive to the sins of our past, to our failure to care for one another and God's creation? Does God take everything from us because we have failed? No. No, in fact, God meets us with forgiveness, debt forgiveness, at every moment. God's invitation is always to do that, 
to do it again tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow, to work towards a world that looks like that well-run household, that is just, where all of creation is cared for, where everyone gets a Sabbath, including the land. God invites us toward that, but God never holds that debt over our head. God never charges us interest or takes it from us because we cannot deliver. God comes to us with grace and mercy and invites us always to do better, to heal. So what then do we owe to the people who are in debt to us? I want to share with you this parable that we heard from Scripture in Matthew 18. Again, it's a literal parable about debt. Actual money. But it does come in the context of forgiveness, where Peter says, how many times? How many times should I forgive somebody in community? And you could hear that in a number of different ways. You could hear Peter being like, so, teacher, do tell. How many times should I forgive? Or you could hear it the way that I hear it, which is like, how many times? How many times do I have to forgive? How many times do I have to forgive somebody for doing the same thing to me over and over again? Seven times? That seems excessive, Jesus. And Jesus' response is 70 times, seven times. And then he tells this story. Now, I want to note really quickly, because I think we can't actually fully enter into these stories without acknowledging some stuff. There is the term slave in this story. And in this context, um, because we're having, we have kings and slaves, and these slaves owe money uh, to one another and to the king, it's not quite um, the chattel slavery that we know in our history, but I want to make clear that 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 kind of slavery did happen, um, and it was horrendously wrong then, as it has been in our history as a country, and the Bible screws that up royally. And so there are passages um, that speak sort of uncritically and just like in passing about slaves, and that's really messed up. But the slaves here could also be called servants or stewards. And that's one of the reasons that it really connects to our relationship to creation. Because in this story, there's this king who sort of owns everything, and there's stewards who take care of the things that the king owns which maps on pretty directly to God creator who created all and humanity who is charged with caring for God's creation. Now in this story, this is an absurd story. This isn't supposed to be real. There's a lot of hyperbole in it. And this king has a a steward, a servant here called a slave. And that slave owes the king 10,000 talents. Now, That seems like a great deal of talents. Um, And if I could just get my um, exchange calculator, currency exchange calculator. Um, No, it's a a boatload of money. Like, it's an absurd amount of money. It's actually, in our day, equivalent to several million dollars. Several million dollars. It's not even a real term. It's just, like, all the money. This person owed him all the money in the world. And... And so the, at the beginning of the story, the king does kind of the standard way of the world response, which is to say, like, okay, you've got to pay me back or you can't pay me back. Well, the correct way in our economy, since you can't pay me back, is I'm going to sell your whole self, 
and everything that you own, I'm going to sell you into slavery. And you will become truly a debt slave. And you won't be able to pay off everything, but the, the price of your head will like make a dent in it. And I'll, you know, I'll take what I can get. And that steward says, like, I'm so sorry. I, like, I, I will do what I can. Like, I will pay you. Like, please have mercy on me. I will pay you back. And this king is like, you know what? It's fine. Like, I get it. I get your situation. I see that you want to, uh, to be good to me, and I want to be good to you. So actually, like, not only am I not going to, like, sell you into slavery to pay off your debt the traditional way in our economy, I'm also just going to cancel your debt. Like, you are a steward who's trying to take care of my, my things. Like, I, let me just erase that debt for you and just be a good steward. And so then this steward turns around and there's somebody who owes him money. Somebody further down the food chain from him. A hundred denarii. Again, we're going to need that little calculator. It's like a couple bucks. And again, this is like hyperbole, absurdity, because this first steward owed millions and somebody owes him a couple bucks. And he gets so mad about it he grabs him by the throat and is horrible to him and says, pay me back. And this other person's like, I can't, let me try, like I want to try, and I will do my best. And the steward says, not good enough. I'm throwing you in prison, and you will sit there and rot until you can pay me back. Now, I think some of the other authors might have left it there, because I think that that's you know, tells the full scope of the story, but not Matthew. <laughs> Matthew likes the big fiery ending and says, the king got wind of this and is like, are you kidding me? And tortured him and said, I'm going to torture you until your debt is paid. And so will God in heaven. This hyperbole is meant to drive home the point. Not that God actually does that to us. In fact, if God can't forgive our unforgiveness, then what is God really capable of forgiving? How can God forgive all of our debt around creation, our failure to love one another, our failure to care for the world, but draw the line at our failure to forgive? God doesn't. And God's forgiveness truly is infinite. But it's absurd it's absurd the way that God lavishes, lavishes forgiveness on us, lavishes freedom on us, invites us into freedom, and yet we hold one another captive for sins and debts far lesser than collectively what we owe to creation. And so what do we take from this? We cannot be good stewards of creation if we are in debt slavery. We cannot be fully free human beings expressing love to one another if we are always captive to our wrongs, to our past, to our poverty. And this is where the literal debts of the world do fold into trespasses and sins. 
Sin means something also a little different, a little more nuanced than we often have space for in our culture. We like to think about it as doing something on the bad list. But that's not really how God conceptualizes sin. And the word itself is actually about straying from the path. It's about there being a way of righteousness, of goodness, of kindness, a way towards that household and veering from it. That word repentance that some of us have some really awful associations with, metanoia, the Greek, just means to turn back. And so when we have that sense of like sin is losing our way, And repentance is finding our way back. When we have other models, Eastern Christianity talks about sin as sickness. And the move toward wholeness, toward healing, as salvation. So when we have wronged one another, when we have strayed from the path, what happens if we, like that stingy servant, Instead of meeting one another with grace, we grab one another by the throat, forgetting that we too have gotten lost and that we have been welcomed back by the God of the universe, that we are welcomed back no matter how far we stray. And yet, when someone steps off the path in a way that hurts us, what is our reaction? Do we forgive them? Do we welcome them back? Or do we grip them by the throat, hold them captive to it until they fix everything they've done? Now you'll notice a tension here that Jubilee is about restoration and reparations. The Jubilee is about making right what has been wrong. But there is no vengeance in it. There is mercy in it. It is merciful to make things right. Repair must be done to come back to the path. But do we give one another the grace to do that? Or do we hold them by the throat and put them in prison until they can? I also want to pause here to say that forgiveness does not mean allowing the continuation of harm. That that is never what I mean when I talk of forgiveness, and I believe that is never what Jesus means. For me, there's there's this image that I can't get out of my mind, that we are called to embrace one another, and yet, I can't embrace you if you have a knife to my gut. You have to be disarmed. You are never called to bring someone into closeness and intimacy when they are harming you and when doing so would cause you more harm. But neither are we allowed to hold people captive to the harms of the past. That invitation to make things right is one of intimacy, is one of restoration, is one of forgiveness and wholeness and mercy. So how can we, like God, Forgive those debts. How can we, like God, invite people into wholeness, into repair, into restoration of what has been broken, what they have perhaps broken? How can we do that without vengeance, 
without cruelty, without holding it in our hearts. And that's where Matthew actually ends. That when we don't fully forgive someone in our heart, when we hold them under a little bit of debt forever, that is when we fail to love as God has loved us. That is us using the ways of this world, the debt, the enslavement, the cruelty, the captivity of the world as it is to make our way rather than using the kingdom tools of forgiveness and mercy. We are called to forgive one another, to embrace one another, and to heal together. That is no easy task, but it is the way of the gospel. Will you join me in prayer? God, there is something disarming about forgiveness. We pray that you would allow us to forgive ourselves as you have forgiven us. We pray, God, that you would allow us to forgive one another as you have forgiven all of us. We pray, God, that we would advocate for the forgiveness of all kinds of debts, that we would build with your help a world where no one is held captive, where economies are no longer built on scarcity and need and suffering and desperation, God, but that the world, this household, your family, is built on kindness, generosity, and mercy. God, we pray for your year of jubilee when all is made right, when harm is repaired, when hearts are made whole, as we are welcomed back to the path with grace. Lord God, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Amen.